Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, July 22nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 18. Today's episode is going to delve into the history and the benefits of bone broth. I became interested in bone broth during my own healing process. I needed to focus on animal fats and proteins and cooked vegetables um, at the suggestion of my herbalist, and uh, making bone broth was a ritual that became the basis of all soups and stews, crockpot recipes, and vegetable purees that I made. I was mainly focused on healing uh, my hypothyroidism, uh, which means a slow thyroid, and because I chart my temperatures, I actually watched my own recovery in the form of those temperatures steadily rising over the course of a year on this regimen. And bone broth, among many of the other elements in the regimen, really helped me see improvements relatively quickly. So this set off my fascination with bone broth. And the more I read, the more I discovered that it has diverse ancient roots. It's a really old practice. And these practices have meaning, sometimes sacred meaning. And so the Western diet deals with meat and fat all wrong. Industrial agriculture is inherently disrespectful to animals and their physiological as well as psychological needs. And thus their quality of life is not good, their physical being suffers, and the nutrition is low. Many people know that I'm a staunch opponent of industrial agriculture. We already know that the idea that industrial agriculture feeds the world is a marketing fantasy created by agri-corporations. We know that most of the world is fed by small plots and local agriculture. So we don't normalize using all parts of the animal that have these high fat, high gelatin, high collagen components, like a chicken's foot or a goat's head. And it it makes it a little tougher to get access to these parts of the animal. It takes more organization. You might have to plan out going to a butcher, but it can make a huge difference. And I've seen that firsthand. And it's part of the reason why I've dedicated myself to farming chickens because I want those nutrients and I'm also committed to knowing where they originated from. And so it's no surprise that pre-industrial societies across the globe have always placed particular and special emphasis on preparation of the whole entire animal. And that would include things like using the bones for making broth, as well as the hooves, the head, the tail, the back fat, the entire, the skin, the inside of the organs to cook other items. Some of the first uh, ways that we cooked food before the invention of, of a cook pot was right in the hide of the animal itself. So we've been making broth for a very, very long time. Ancient Africans had placed special emphasis on bone broths for babies and small children And Senegalese women still drink bone marrow broth during pregnancy. In Asia, there's a long history of Chinese medicine using bone broth with an emphasis on stocks and broths, which if you think about, you know, food that you've had, ramen, things like that, pho, it's obvious that the broth component is an extremely important cornerstone to the taste and also to the experience of having that food, but in this case also the nutrition. So broths made from fish and fish bones uh, are also very prominent in Asian history. And then in Europe, you have stocks and broths, 
which become the foundation of cooking and are used not only to make soup and stew, but also for preparing reductions and sauces and for braising vegetables and meats. In the Americas, you then have the bones of ruminant animals regularly consumed in a variety of ways, raw and cooked processes. And this is always fascinating because science, modern science now confirms just how nutritious these practices were and, and why people ate the marrow and why people crushed the bones and why people kept the lard, uh, and why 80% of an indigenous American's diet would have been from fat, and why pregnancy was so easy for those women. Things like that. So the, the history, it, it really takes you around the globe when you start to look at something as fundamental as broth, if you think about it. Like, that's the, like the simplest and the most basic form of nutrition. When you taste it, you taste the nutrients. Um, so I wanted to go through the history of bone broth through that structure of going around the world and understanding some of the history behind it. Whether broth was used directly as a soup or an ingredient in cooking, records show that people were making bone broth at least as long as we've been writing information on tablets and likely earlier. One of the earliest records of a recipe comes from the Yale collection of tablets known as the Babylonian collection, and these are circa 1750 BC. Translated from Akkadian, which is an extinct language of Mesopotamia, the recipes included ingredients for 25 different stews and broths 21 of those were specifically meat-based recipes. And interestingly, these weren't full recipes, but more like quick notes or guidelines that an experienced cook would have worked from. And likely these reflected a food that a very important citizen or uh, royalty of some kind would have been eating. So we can assume from these recipes that ordinary people weren't necessarily eating these foods, but they were eating more basic versions, utilizing whatever cuts of meat or bones that they could get a hold of. And science, again, has, you know, really validated what the ancestors knew, which is that there are healing powers within this broth, and those powers are all-encompassing. The first person often credited with first writing about bone broth was Moses Maimonides, and he was an Egyptian Jewish physician and philosopher, and he wrote about the medicinal uses of bone broth in the 12th century AD. So he was known to prescribe a chicken soup of sorts as a medicinal remedy for colds and asthma. He was a rabbi and a revered Jewish philosopher, and so this is maybe one reason that chicken soup is so heavily connected to part of the uh, traditional Jewish kitchen. And he stated in this uh, writing that the chicken or pullet would be boiled, stewed, steamed, or boiled with fresh coriander and green fennel added to the soup. And for the summertime, he recommended the addition of lemon or citrus juices. So these basic aromatic chicken bone broths become the cornerstone of 
all of the Jewish traditional cuisine, the noodles, the matzah balls, the famous chicken soup remedy, and, and so it goes from there. Now moving a little further to the east, we can talk about the Chinese medicine perspective. These origins date back over 2,500 years, and bone broth in Chinese medicine is used to support digestive health, it's a blood builder, and it strengthens the kidneys. So let me explain why this makes sense from a Chinese medical perspective. We are all born with Jing, which can be described as your life force essence, and it's the juice that gets you through life. When it's all burned up, you pass away. And so you inherit your Jing supply from your parents. So some of us are born with more Jing than others. But you can burn through it more quickly or replenish it depending on your lifestyle and your dietary habits. And Jing is stored in the kidneys, the brain, the ova, semen, and in your bone marrow. In Chinese medicine, foods and herbs are used to supplement your Jing, especially if you're showing signs of a deficiency. Preserving your jing is important for increasing your fertility and your overall wellness. So bone broth in particular is an extremely beneficial uh, tool for fertility patients from the Chinese medical perspective, and this is because it has a deeply tonifying nature. Chinese medicine considers bone broth to be sweet and astringent, warming, and good for kidney deficiencies. Broth has been used for centuries to help babies alleviate digestive problems and colic. The French have long believed in the healing power of gelatin-rich broth for many chronic diseases. And there are even artifacts that exist of these spoons that were specifically developed for scooping out marrow because bone marrow was so commonly uh, consumed. And Again, if you think to the traditions of these ancient European, Eastern European cultures, things like borscht, these cuisines are traditionally made from a bone stock. So again, we see another example of warming foods, completely different place, uh, and even a, a different century, but again, the same themes of uh nourishment and also getting those fats to people that are growing or people that are sick. Um, those are themes that, that you continue to see. The Americas also have a rooted history of utilizing the entire animal and using the fatty parts, organ meats, and bones to make broth. The first note is that indigenous Americans hunted selectively usually only harvesting adult animals that were not pregnant or mothers. And this is because older animals would have had thicker fat reserves. Uh, they had more time to grow. And the fat would have been rendered and stored in either the bladder or the large intestine, which are good casing organs, uh, if you're familiar. And they, that would have been eaten with dried or smoked meat. Hooves would have been boiled in the same way to release the gelatin and any kind of fat that would have turned solid at room temperature uh, would have been something that would have been scraped off and, and used at a later date. Bone marrow was full of fat and they knew that because there's uh, many records of the way that the femur bone would have been struck in half to split it and uh, the, the practice of eating the bone marrow raw and then those bones would have been boiled and the fat cap would have been skimmed off of that 
for for use later. So most most times there's a utilization of the whole animal and also an emphasis on preservation is important as well because the whole animal is going to go bad. So it needs to be sm- the meat needs to be smoked, the bones have to be boiled, the fat has to be rendered. These would have been practices that would have all culminated with the harvest of the animal. Another example of this is the beaver. Beaver are also extremely high in fat, and uh, their bones were actually dried and ground into a powder. And then that powder would get mixed back in with the meat and the grease and eaten all together. Bear is another sacred food, and especially the fat from the bear uh, has uh, male fertility capabilities. And so it was said that bear diet for six weeks could improve the male fertility. And in this case, if you were a man in your group, you would have been looked down upon if you couldn't have a child. So uh, I think that's very interesting that there was a certain reputation to being fertile and that that would have been important to someone's social status especially because we're talking about men, and usually now in the fertility narrative, it's always the woman's fault about uh, infertility, and it must be something wrong with her. Men are very testy about getting their sperm looked at, and even an accusation that they wouldn't be a full-blooded male um, in patriarchy is looked down upon. So in this society, it would have been flipped in that uh, if you were a man and you couldn't produce a child, uh, you need to get on that bear diet so that um, you can be a productive member of the society and continue uh, the commune. And lastly, there's a very famous uh, South American proverb that uh, is said that good broth will resurrect the dead and uh, Broth is used to decrease the pain of childbirth, and again, it has these themes in pregnancy, fertility, uh, childhood, and illness. So this is like a trip around the world with bone broth, and this is really just a very scratch of the surface. Um, These are big concepts and uh, diverse places, so... The specifics, uh, you could really look at any region of the world and get into the specifics of their uh, bone broth, what animal parts, what plant parts, and what herb parts uh, were components of that. And all of those things were considered active compounds and not just about flavor, but also about the deep nutrition involved. And now I'd like to talk about the science behind bone broth because obviously if it has such an ancient root in so many cultures, you could assume that people did it because it worked, because it was an effective treatment for things um, and also an effective preventative treatment uh, to make sure that your population was healthy. Bone broth has some really interesting nutritional components and it has one of the better fertility-friendly components to it. And we know that fertile people are healthy people. Of course, we're talking about adult people in the middle of their life. And there's 
hormones that can be balanced and fertility that can be bolstered through dealing with these infertility issues naturally. And one of the first places when you're dealing with any chronic issue is to look at the gut. Um, We know the disease comes from the gut. Hippocrates said that a very long time ago, that that's where the origination of everything is. And to a certain degree, uh, he was onto something there. Because bone broth can heal your gut and your gut is so linked to your endocrine system and your hormonal health, it's obvious that healing your GI tract would help your fertility um, and help your overall wellness. Healing your GI tract basically changes your internal environment. Uh, You're changing the microbial panel inside of yourself, and so you could be calming whole body inflammation through that process. Uh, It's that kind of environment, a good, diverse gut environment that would increase nutrient bioavailability. And what I mean by that is that nutrients come in different forms. And just like a plant can't suck up uh, magnesium unless it's gone through the body of some microbes and been pooped out on the other end, you can't do that either. Uh, we would not be able to survive without microbes inside of our body doing this uh, nutrient flipping process for us and actually making these nutrients bioavailable so that they can get inside of our cells so that we can get the vitamins and minerals. Um, So you might be working really hard to eat well and get supplements into your system, but if those foods aren't available, if those nutrients can't get into your body, it can't get absorbed, you'll be uh, excreting them, like you'll be peeing them out. And uh, and that's not what we would want, right? So uh, bone broth can really impact your GI tract because you stop leaking out the good stuff and you can start filtering out the bad stuff at the same time. And this is because bone broth, as mentioned through Chinese medicine, it directly supports the kidneys and kidney function. So kidney function is going to be directly tied to your adrenal glands, which are, they're actually small adrenal glands on top of each kidney, which is something that I I actually did not know until I got into studying fertility more, um, just where the adrenals are located. And the fact that they're touching the kidney is uh, not an accident. So your adrenal glands are producing essential hormones like your sex hormones, like cortisol. These are vital to your immune system's health and, of course, your fertility. So another reason why you might want to consider consuming bone broth is because you'll really be working on your kidneys, which will affect your adrenals, your thyroid, and the whole lot of it. And that's what happened to me personally. I know that uh, the work that I did with bone broth helped recover my thyroid. I actually saw it. Now, bone broths are a poor protein. They're not a complete protein. But protein isn't what makes bone broth important to us. Um, There are certainly other really beneficial elements that I'm going to be talking about, but I did want to explain that, um, that there is some protein, but it's a poor protein, and um, you would get your protein from other better sources, ideally. Bone broths are, however, extraordinarily rich in nutrients. Uh, These would be particularly talking about conditionally essential amino acids and some minerals. 
the amino acids that I'm talking about would be arginine, glycine, proline, there are a few others, glutamine. Uh, glycine is the simplest amino acid. It's the amino acid that we use to make other amino acids. It's like the precursor. And we need this uh, when we have an increased need. So a pregnant person needs this. Somebody suffering from an illness or an infection needs more glycine. Somebody who regularly tears their muscles because they're in the gym or they're doing sports or somebody who's on some sort of a detox. It supports the body's detoxification process and it's used in the synthesis of hemoglobin, bile salts, other naturally occurring chemicals within the body. Um, it supports digestion and the secretion of gastric acids. So glycine is going to be in a very available form uh, in a broth. So that's uh, huge. Also proline, another amino acid, um, is something that you'll see very deficient on people who are eating high-carb, low-fat diets, um, vegan diets, especially when paired with vitamin C. Proline will support skin health. Glutamine, another amino acid in bone broth, is gut healing. It heals the, uh, the walls of the gut and stops uh, the holes from forming in the gut, which causes things like leaky gut and um, also de greatly decreases the absorption process in the gut, which is how we uh, make those nutrients available to our body. Uh, so anybody suffering from celiac or Crohn's, colitis, IBS, SIBO, uh, these inflammatory or gut degenerative uh, conditions can use the, the glutamine found and bone broth to, uh, to help heal. Um, there's also something of note with glutamine uh, and folks with autism or other uh, blood-brain barrier disorders. There might be a reason to cook broth for less time, uh, which would release less glutamine because you don't want to have too much, especially when someone um, is on the spectrum, it could actually have negative effects. So I wanted to make that uh, transparent as well. Um, just something to note that the way that bone broth is prepared can make a difference in uh, the amino acids that would be released. Um, and in the case of autistic folks, um, you would want to cook broth for a shorter period of time than uh, for an average adult. Bone broths are also rich in gelatin, which improves collagen status and supports skin health. We all have heard about taking gelatin or taking dried collagen, but uh, the best way, the most bioavailable way to get that into your system is to drink the broth, uh, first off to make the broth and then to, to drink a rich, um, healthy and fresh broth. There's also some talk about uh, calcium with bone broth, but I wanted to kind of clear the air on that as well, which is that bone broth doesn't have a significant uh, source of calcium. The calcium is uh, what the bone is made out of, but when you make bone broth, you're releasing other components, such as the marrow um, and some other minerals, but calcium is not actually going to be uh, high on the list of what you're going to see in a nutritional breakdown of bone broth. So I would recommend trying to get your calcium, if you're low in calcium, from other places. Bone broth wouldn't be an appropriate food for that. But what is one of the more important things is that uh, 
collagen fibrils are the building blocks of bone and collagen fibrils will actually form a lattice work for uh, the deposition of calcium phosphate and other minerals in the bone. That's what uh, structures the bone. Uh, that's why our bones are strong. <laughs> and this is why bone broth can help you build bone even though it has a low calcium content. Because it's not about the calcium with bone broth. It's about uh, you know reversing these uh, degenerative uh, bone conditions through creating more of these like lattice works of collagen and those are are like the little honeycomb of uh of the bone that keeps it really really strong so the last thing i'm going to talk about today is how to make bone broth and what it could or should be made out of all bones are not the same definitely not anyone that knows me and listens to this podcast knows that i'm all about practices agricultural practices are the most important thing when it comes to nutrients, I do not look at a chart of broccoli on you know the USDA website of what's the nutritional breakdown of broccoli because the broccoli that I buy from the Laotian farmers that you know grow it organically 20 minutes from my house is completely different nutritionally than the head of industrial mutant broccoli, the huge head of broccoli that you see in the store, um, in a grocery store. My suggestion is to stop buying from the grocery store. If you can stop buying vegetables and fruits from the grocery store, you're just, you're whacking out so many things, uh, pesticides, and I could go on and on. So with that said, bones are the same. You don't want to be sourcing bones from a supermarket pretty much ever. Um, these animals lived a bad quality of life. They were sad. They lived in cages. They didn't see the light of day. They didn't eat on pasture or in forests. Um, they didn't eat a biodiverse diet. They ate corn and soy. Uh, so why go through the process, such an arduous process in our unfortunately capitalist world? It's harder to make a simple bone broth, unfortunately. We don't have enough time. And uh, so it's hard enough to go through this whole process and care about your health. So get your bones from a good source. Don't buy them from the grocery store because the convenience aspect of that, there's an externalized cost there. And the cost is that there isn't the deep nutrition that you're looking for. So you might say, oh, it's convenient. I can just pick up these bones at the store. They're right here. But in the end, like what's the output, you know? So think about that cost-benefit analysis there, I guess. So I would suggest instead to use high-quality bones. This would mean organic bones, grass-fed animals. You can choose from chicken, fish, pigs, cows, uh, really whatever you like. There's no restriction. Ruminant animals, the whole lot, whatever you can get your hands on, really, poultry. Um, you can use a bit of each. You can mix them all together. I have an amazing duck and chicken bone stock that is combined um, in the freezer. And I'm going to defrost it and make something delicious with it soon. Uh, that's the great thing about it. You can make large batches and then keep them for, for quite a while. Um, but you can also use all the different parts of a carcass, not just the femur bones, but the gizzards, the feet the marrow, the rib cage, 
pretty much the whole thing is going to have uh, good qualities in it. So you want those benefits. Uh, in my opinion, it makes the most sense to buy a whole animal or part of a whole animal with the bone on, with the meat on, and make something out of that, make a dinner out of that, and then keep those bones in the freezer until you have enough. And then when you think, okay, this is enough for a really rich broth, you know, really boil that off and, and make more of it at once. Once you've added your bones or your feet or your gizzards, your organs, whatever it is that you're going to use to your stock, you can add celery, you can add onions, carrots, add herbs, add the things that you like, add um, stems from your kale or whatever food scraps you have, any kind of veg scraps, honestly, you want to throw those in there too. I'm a composter, so we try to make sure that that food came from a farmer and then that that food is eaten at least once, hopefully twice, and then that that food eventually gets composted. So the stock can be the second to last thing in that process, I guess, of really getting all the nutrients out of that food that someone painstakingly grew for you, that some farmer painstakingly harvested for you, um, and just to give thanks to the animal and to the plants for providing these nutrients for us, that knowing that Mother Nature took care of us. Um, another trick is to add vinegar to the water. That helps draw out the minerals from the bones into the broth. Uh, I would suggest that. Just up your nutrient content a little bit more, throw a tablespoon of vinegar into it. For a deeper flavor, you can roast bones, brown them in the oven before making stock. If you've already roasted the chicken, you've roasted the bones. And so, again, the, the double process there is always great. And you can boil it if you'd like, or you can experiment with slow, longer cooks and see what types of broth you're getting. Are you getting a deeper broth with a boil? Are you getting a deeper broth with a long simmer? Um, and tailor it to what you like. Uh, I would make large quantities and freeze them in glass jars for the future because there's nothing better than uh, consuming that when you don't feel well or even just in the morning instead of having coffee if you have bone broth. That's a transition that can really help a lot of people. I think we're not eating enough fat in the morning and it's causing us to crash out really early during the, the day. And uh, I like to see for my own self more of an extended energy throughout my day. And I know that that will come from eating more fats in the morning. So um, the winter can also be really tough on people's immune systems. And again, having that strong gut and having your immune system be boosted by the bone broth is, is going to benefit you and keep you from getting sick. And a lot of people could be sick around you and you won't get sick. And that's a pretty interesting uh, thing to note, that your immune system could be so strong uh, that it'd be able to withstand even exposure to some of these pathogens. So that's the basics. It's not very complicated and hence why it's such an old process. It's, uh, and I just think that this is a practice that can benefit so many people and we have so many people suffering from infertility and just issues in the realm of general health and chronic pain. And I've suffered through a lot of this stuff. And I wanted to share bone broth just because the history is fascinating. And I think we can all learn from ancient cultures and, and what, they were, what they were trying to practice and how harmoniously they lived with the earth. So 
I'm really inspired by that and trying to make that a, an actual lifestyle practice in the modern world is um, a little bit taboo sometimes. But if you look back at most people's cultures, um, their grandparents have a history of this. It's not that far off. We're not that far removed. And so the closer that we can get to that again, I think is, is a good thing. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone. This concludes episode 18 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Have a good one.